Many months ago, alone at home, Susan started to stare at me. Not in the Song of Solomon way, unfortunately, but more like a dermatologist examining a patient. She got closer to me and she used her pretty little index finger to point to a few places on my body. And she said, you need to get that looked at and that spot and that spot. Okay. She, her poking and her prodding has resulted in me calling and I have in, in the next couple of weeks, I have an upcoming examination with a medical professional. Now why? The easy answer would be because Susan told me to. But the real answer is, well, it's part that. But look, a freckle could turn into a sunspot. A sunspot could reflect sun damage. Sun damage could be cancer, and cancer can kill. And so in the next few weeks, I anticipate I will arrive one day. I will fill out some paperwork. As I file in, they will give me one of those worthless robes with the back cut out of it. I will sit in my whitey tidies alone in a sterile room waiting on a physician and waiting and waiting, and they will eventually come in and examine me. Now, that, is that going to be uncomfortable? Probably. Will it hurt? Possibly. Will I want to be somewhere else? Positively. But I'm doing it because I need to. For many, many months, Susan said, here's something that you should do. Now, I can, as I have, pretend that it's not there or that it will go away, or I can make it a priority. And this morning, before we jump into a very difficult passage, I stand before you today, and I want to say, as the pastor here, I want to say to you that you've got some spots on you. You've got some marks on your body. You've got some character defects. You have a sickness in your soul. And like me, you've got a choice. Do you pretend that it's not there, that it will go away, or will you make it a priority? And there is a default to the human condition. It's the pretend. It's the hope it will go away. It w it's the manage my life. Because over and over again, people, men and women like you and I, file into churches and we sit in pews and we're committed to managing our life. Our life is not as messy as some people, so we manage. We, we are, we're committed to being conventionally decent people. And it's why I believe God gives us this story in Scripture today. Now, it's easy for us, the spots, the marks, the wounds... It's easy to hide. It's easy to put our character defects, the sickness of our soul, to keep it on the back burner, just vaguely back there, and just to manage the image of our lives. But we have a story in Acts, Acts chapter 5. I want you to turn there. And if you don't have your scripture, we're going to put it up in a moment, not just yet. But this scripture is strange and it's scary. We are in a moment going to read this from Acts chapter 5. And, but before we get there, I want to tell you, before five, I want to tell you how four ends. Four ends this way. It says that all the believers were one in mind and spirit. Not only were they all one, it says that nobody considered their possessions as their own, but they looked to give to those who had need. Now, let me just say something in 2017 to our church, to you and to me. Everybody's got sort of an ethos, don't they? Everybody's got a view. Everybody's got an ideology. Everybody's got some sort of politics. And you can tell just being around someone, if you talk about current events, you can tell what someone, how they see the world. Uh, in Galatians chapter 6, it says, let each one carry his own weight. That's sort of the Republican verse. And three verses later in Galatians 6, it says, we should bear one another's burdens. That's the progressive liberal democratic verse. Well, who are you? Which are you? Here's what I want to say. In the New Testament at this time, after the day of Pentecost, a special work of God was being manifest in the world. Unlike the world had ever seen. 
And there was an ethos. There was a spirit of generosity in the church. No one was on their own. Everybody had somebody else's back. They were looking out for one another. They were one in spirit and mind. It, it even says specifically, and I believe this is pertinent to the time and the place and what was happening with the refugee crisis and the poverty in Jerusalem. But I, I, the scripture gives us or tells us this, that at the end of Acts 4, that the church was that people, those who had houses and land would sell the houses and land. They would bring them to the apostles' feet where it would be distributed to those who were in need. Now, I think we can all agree that's just a really good thing. It's just a good thing when people look out for each other. It's just a good thing when there are no needy people. It's just a good thing when people don't see their money, possessions, and wealth as their own, but they're giving and they're distributing. That's just a good thing. And I, I need you to nod your head and say, you know, that's a, that's a really good thing because Acts 5, what we're about to read, it doesn't seem like a good thing. And so Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You guys ready for strange and scary? Here we go. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear, you're kidding me? And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her besides her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, I struggle a little bit with this passage. What I, want to do, what I want to do today is very different. I'm just going to call on a couple of you to come up here and to explain that to us, okay? So just let's get a show of hands. Anybody want, to, anybody want my job right here? You're just going to come up and make sense of this historical narrative found in Acts chapter 5. Okay, I'm on my own, and we'll see if you can follow me here. This is strange, and this is scary. And I, I, want, to, I want to talk to you first about just this idea of power. Because at the day of Pentecost, there's a new community, a community that possessed a power given by the Holy Spirit. It had unprecedented voltage and wattage to this power. It was a power to love like the world had never seen, a power to give, a power to forgive, a power to build bridges, a power to bring people together who had so much hostility, who were apart from each other, who wanted nothing to do with each other. It was a power to heal, a power to see some great manifestations of God's work. It was a time of power. And power is a good thing. Some of you are struggling, maybe suffering silently. And you feel helpless and helpless, not knowing a way out. And it's power that you want and need. Maybe you're in a dry season of life and you're not hearing from God and you're so desperately wanting to see 
him and wanting to experience him and wanting to see him come through with this need in your life and you're wanting the power. Power is a great thing, but power is a dangerous thing. And it's here that we have to enter into that idea to understand the severity and harshness of what we read. And power is a great thing, but power is a dangerous thing. And this is where we get it wrong. This is where we over and over and over again, we think that our power is in us. We think that we're God. We think that we can call the shots. We think that being committed to a conventionally decent life is good enough. And with that, with that, there is the powerlessness. I've struggled and I'm often transparent with a lot of you about some of my struggles, some of the voices I hear. And one of the things that God is teaching me greatly about is anxiety and fear. Anybody with me? And I I cling to a promise often that Paul told his young protege, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? Of power and love and a sound mind. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. My power is not in myself. It's not my eloquence. It's not how smart I am. It's not my seminary degree. Paul would say it is in the gospel, this good news that speaks to all. And so power is a great thing. It's needed in your life and needed in mine. I pray it for our church and pray it for our leadership. But it's a very dangerous thing. And where we get it wrong is when we think we can possess the power or contrive the power. And listen to one of the, I think, the prettiest expressions in Scripture. My grace is sufficient for you, Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12. My power is made perfect in weakness. Banish the thought. Perish the notion That your power is in being strong and smart and brilliant and brave. For his power will be displayed in your life to the extent that you know that you are weak. And so let's consider in this passage, we, we get a feel for it, of course. It's the power of God. The power of God to... To rain down the power of God to to do a work. The power of God to make it strange for us. To make it scary for us. And we see, obviously, that there there was great fear. Let me say this about the characters in this story. There's a man named Barnabas who was Joseph. He was given... A double name. Double names are very popular in Scripture. Now, my wife is from Southern California. When she moved to the South, she realizes she realized how many of y'all have double names. A whole lot of double names in the South. And there are double names in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, when God was doing a work and they used to be this person and they were named this. And Joseph in Acts chapter 5 became Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And so with a strange story in Scripture, let me be positive for a second and just say to you that we need more Barnabases. Anybody feel me on that? We need some Barnabas. We need some people who are natural encouragers. They've been gifted by God. It's in their nature, and they seek to build up. When I counsel with married couples who are about to stand here or somewhere and tie the knot, I talk to them about two kinds of people, and I encourage them to be encouragers because there are two types of people in the world. There are basement people, and people that live in the basement are depressing. It's dark down there. That's where you keep all the old, ugly appliances. It's dingy. You don't want to live in the basement, but some people live in the basement. They only see the dark stuff. They only see what's negative and ugly and messy, and they want to drag you down to their basement level. However, some people live on the balcony. They're up there, and they see the processional of life, and they're cheerleaders. They see the big picture. 
How many times have you been bogged down in something, you're only seeing what's in front of you, and you lose sight of the big picture? I was worried a few weeks ago, and a friend texted me, he said, like my mama used to say, Robert, is this going to matter in 10,000 years? We need some people who are on the balcony, out of the basement, and Barnabas is that guy. He's an encourager. What we know about him is that he was Paul's first friend. He accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. He's a fan of diversity. You know that in Acts, walls broke down between genders, between races, between ethnic uh, groups, and the gospel is going forth to the world. And Barnabas, this encourager, was one of those people who was a fan of diversity. He pastored the Gentile believers in Jerusalem. And not only that, he was the leader of famine relief. There was this crisis. Poverty was immense in the time. And Barnabas was the man who was leading the charge to make sure the neediest among them were being taken care of. Praise God for Barnabas, right? For a real encourager. And even though they faced persecution, even though the church was up against a lot, they probably were developing their heroes. They were probably having some folks who were elevated in leadership who were being recognized and known and admired. And I bet you this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, I bet you they grew jealous. I bet you there was some resentment in their heart. I bet you the goodness of the work of God in Barnabas' life exposed what wasn't happening in their own. And I bet you there was this season that they were going through thinking, you know, my heart is divided. I want to be generous, but I want what I want. So Ananias goes to his wife. By the way, can you think of another couple that practiced deception and hiding in the beginning of the Bible? Anybody? Just as there was a couple in Genesis 3 that plotted and deceived and ran and hid, so there is this couple at the beginning of the church. And I think that's why this is so serious, because of this work, because the church was beginning. And Ananias goes to his wife and he says, look, I want, I've got this plan and it'll be great for us because we will, we will have the reputation of being generous, we will have the admiration of others, but we can secretly betray the values that we pretend to uphold. And this was a critical moment because if you've ever, ever had an idea and you go to someone, that person can what? They can crush your idea. And can I say sometimes your ideas need to be crushed? I've got a lot of ideas. I'm thankful that they're crushed. But here is this man. He goes to his wife and says, here's this plan. And she could have said no. She could have said there are spots on your body. She could have said there are defects in your character. She could have said there's a sickness in your soul. But instead she says, good idea. And they move forward with this. This double life. This divided heart led to a double life. Which led to this deception. Which led to their death. The power... The power is in not managing your image. The power is not in your wealth. The power is not in your reputation. The power is not in your strength or your brilliance or your skill. The power is in his grace in your life. And so, after Pentecost, this special time in the life of the church, I think it's the reason, perhaps, that we see the severity of this story. Now, I want you to go today and read and study about it. I don't just read it, but study about it and see what you conclude. How did Peter know? How did they really die? Was this the supernatural judgment of God? Did they die and go to hell? Did they? How do you know that? How do you know? Why make these assumptions? And how, what was the cause of their death? And this is just one of those stories that we want to 
enter into with some sort of data, some sort of rational explanation, and God just leaves us with a story. But I wonder if you would allow it to have its effect like it had that day, where fear would seize you, where there would be a sense of moving away from what petty power you think you have to the ultimate power that God possesses. What's the sin here? The sin is not resentment or jealousy or greed. In fact, I don't think greed existed in the early church in this time. It was a time of great revival. Greed was not known at the time. And what was happening, the expression of what was happening was unbelievable. But I think it's a story of deceit. And nothing will block the flow of God's power in our lives like deception. And it's really important. So here's what I want to say to you this morning. I think we need to let God be God and let the Bible be the Bible and let the story be the story. That the one who created life can also take life. And the one who takes life is the one who decides on everyone's eternal destiny. It is in his hands. And can I say today, I'm good with that. I can trust that God. I can't trust you with that. You can't trust me with that. But we can trust God. Deuteronomy 32, 4, Moses says, He's the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. He's a God of truth and without iniquity. He can be trusted. And God wanted fear to be gripped by these people. He wanted them to be gripped by fear to show how dangerous deception is. And I believe God calls us into a truth-telling community. I don't think this is going to happen in our day. By the way, that'd be terrible for church growth. Come to Fondren where people are dying. That's just not good, is it? That's not good at all. We want to look past it. We want to pretend it's not in there. And I do believe that this is an exceptional story. I think as God moves us forward, he wants us to one another, one another. That when you are deceiving or you appear to be deceiving or you've gone off the beaten path, that we would not harshly judge one another or look down from a lofty perch, but we would, according to James chapter 5, we would woo you back. We would look for the wonder and call you back, not call down God to kill you. But I believe this is an exceptional story. And I believe we need to let this story be the story. Nothing will block the flow of spiritual power in your life like deception. And so this morning, we're going to get back to the story in a moment, but I want to give you some principles that are really important. A really important way to live. One is living with a moral inventory. Psalm 139, I'm just putting the reference up, but there's a prayer. It's 24 verses of Psalm 139. Some of the most famous passages in the Bible are in this verse. And at the end of it, the psalmist says, he prays really four prayers. Search my heart, examine my anxious ways, show me my sin, and lead me in the path. Do you have that kind of time in your life? Now, most of your prayers are probably, bless me, right? Bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. Help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Lord. Be with me, be with me, be with me. Bless me, be with me. And then that need comes up and you may pray a particular supplication. But what about that prayer? What, what about a prayer when you're not on social media and no screen is on and no loud person or person is in your life distracting you and you just sit? You just sit. And you listen. And you pray, search me, search my heart. If you'll look back at Acts 5, amidst the strangeness and spookiness of the story, you'll see the, heart, the word heart mentioned several times. Why has Satan filled your heart? That's different than being filled with the Spirit. Why have you plotted this thing in your heart? 
Your heart is who you really are, and it's why we need God to search it. Search my heart. Examine my anxiety. Show me my sin. When you sin, don't you know that you sin? Why would you pray, show me my sin? I mean, if you're sinning, don't you know it? Not necessarily. Search me. Examine me. Show me and lead me. We need... We need this in our lives, this moral inventory. And we need to be as fearless as we can in it. Secondly, we need deep confession. James chapter 5 and verse 16 is set up for us. The half-brother of Jesus tells us that this is the kind of Jesus community, the kind of community Jesus came to set up. But how far afield we are in the modern church. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful, there's that word again, and effective. I just want to say, I believe that. Man, I believe this. I can't explain everything about a story, every story, but, but I can look at some of these clear commands, some of these clear practices that you and I are to be a part of, and I can say, Man, I get this, and I need this, and I see it as an essential part of my life. Don't tell everybody all your stuff. Confess your sins, your character defects, to God, to yourself, and to another person. And I pray that you have that other person. It may not, that person may not be in your life, but I bet they are. And I bet you can go deeper with them. This week I sat down with a young man who told me about his life, about the groups that he's going to. And how he, as a young man, has just started to attend a, a meeting, a, a help group for sex addicts. And I asked him, why? What's happened? What's the bottom? What are you not telling me? Understanding that confession is difficult. Has there been a bottom? What is that bottom? How can we help you? He said, man, I haven't hit bottom, but I know my struggles with porn. I know how it's affecting my brain and my relationships. I'm getting an idea of it. I know how it enslaves me and I want help and I'm going and I'm talking to older men to see what it's done to them and these stories are freaking me out. Find somebody that you can confess your sins to because that's where the power and the healing is. Not in the divided heart, not in the double life that leads to deception and that, can I say, can kill you. But find that place. What's hardest for you? What is hardest? Confessing to God, to yourself, or to another? I'd love for you to answer that. Do you have an answer? If you, if you have an answer, answer that out loud. What's harder, confessing to God, yourself, or another person? Another person. Are you kidding me? Like they, they're with you. Like they have a face. Like whatever you tell them, they could go tell somebody else, right? Can you trust them with that secret? Everybody, let me, let me tell you, everybody, though our story is different, at the heart of everyone in here is the desire to be loved. That's your greatest Desire. God gave you that desire to be loved. But you can, I mean, it's why we do things. It's why I was a kid jumping off the second floor balcony, doing a cannonball into the swimming pool, right? Look at me, notice me, love me. I want to be noticed, known, and loved. But you, you and I live our lives looking at some special people going, love me, love me, love me, but we hold back. We hold back. We only live half-heartedly. We don't tell people our secrets, and we're only loved to the extent that we're known. Do you hear what I'm saying? So that when you're with somebody, and you have somebody, and you tell them that secret, 
you confess that sin, you are then known and then you can be loved in a deeper way because you're known, you're not hiding anymore. And some of you know this and not enough of you do, that's when you break the power of that sin of deception in your life. It's loosened a little bit. Now here's what I want to say. It's hardest to confess to another person. You have to have that person. You've got to be that person. And you confess to a real face and you confess in real time. And this is where we get it really wrong. This command in James 5, confess your sins to one. It's real time. It's so easy for us. And I've been guilty of this. Oh, let me tell you. Hey, can we talk? Let me tell you about what I did six years ago. It's been weighing on me. I've been guilt-ridden about it. Here's what I did six years ago. I want you to know me better. I want you to know what happened in case it ever comes up. And forgive me and love me. It was six years ago. That does some good, but very little good. But a real-time confession is this. It's, hey, I am being tempted right now with this, and I need your help. Like, that's where the healing can come in. Because all around the room today, there are some of us right now, they're in a conundrum. Right now, we're facing something. And right now, like tomorrow, we could do that dumb thing. But to confess, to confess to someone in real time is saying, I need help now. I don't care that you won't think I'm a spiritual giant. I need help now. And here's what I'm telling you. I'm getting older. I've lived a lot of years and I'm telling you, I need people more. I don't need people less. Now, if that's true of me, good gracious, it's got to be true for y'all, right? Moral inventory. Deep confession. And thirdly, making amends. It's actually doing something about it. Have you seen the LifeLock commercial where the customers are in the bank and they're all there ready to make a transaction or something and a couple of gunmen come in, some robbers, ski masks, they're brandishing weapons, and they fall on the floor. The people fall on the floor and they look up and there's a security guard. And the lady says to the man, to the security guard, I thought you were a security guard. He goes, oh, no, ma'am, I'm only a security monitor. I'm just here to monitor. I just tell people if there is a robbery, there is a robbery. They do nothing, right? They're just standing there. There's a little bit of humor there. Why? Because you want that person to do something about it. There's so little good in just monitoring. I know a friend. He's older than me. I love him to death. 22, 23 years ago, He was likely to kill himself and probably some other people. Just everything was about to be sabotaged. And then he got real. And he got help. And we talk about this often. He says, for years, every single day, three times a day, I went to AA meetings. That seems too much to me. I would clarify with it. Three, Three times a day, every day, for many, many years, I went to AA. Because every moment of the day, It hung over me, and I had to beat this. And then I just went once a day. And now for the last couple of years, I go twice a week. But what I love about my friend, why he's an example to me, walking in confession and being in community, is that he did something about it. The power is in when you do something about it. James, again, the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 1 says... Do not merely listen to the word. And so what? Deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The power, it's in the doing. 
So back to this story. I can't explain it to you today. If you want it to be rationalized and explained, I cannot do that fully. But I will say to you, as I said earlier, I'm at a place where I can let God be God. The one who creates life can be the one who takes life, and the one who takes life can be the one who is the final arbiter of justice and eternity for all. And he is a good God, and he always does what is right. I can rest in that. I've read from liberal scholars, and I've read from conservatives this week on actually how they died and what could have happened and all kind of different theories. But the fact is, this story is there and it just sits over us. And I think we have to let it sit over us. And whatever kind of healthy fear it can bring to us, I think we need it to bring healthy fear in our lives. I pray that we as a church have the fear of God. And here's what I love about this story. As the church grew and flourished, God goes, bam, I don't want to tolerate this in leadership. Do you pray for your pastor? Do you pray for your leaders? If you see something that's out of line that doesn't smell good, will you gently confront? Will you realize that perfection is not going to exist anywhere in this church or anywhere else, but we can be an honest people? And what I want to say about this story is I just leave it with you. But God cares about generosity and honesty. And if we and any leaders want to get away, get in the way of God, what God wants to do with honesty and generosity, I say we need some fear of God. It's an exceptional story. But it, God gave it to us. And I pray that we would let it sit over us. If God created, can he do this? Can he do anything? I think he can. So let God be God. Let the Bible be the Bible. Let the story be the story. And so for you, go. Go now and find needs and meet them. And go now and be warned that pretending to be someone you're not could kill you. And so if you have a phone, I've never done this, but this is my summation. Take, take your phone out and take a picture of this. This is, this is good. Luke wrote Acts. Luke wants us to know that the resurrection led to the formation of a community of generous and honest people who gave themselves to the well-being of each other, doing whatever they needed to do to make sure everyone had their needs met. They were highly aware of the divine presence in their midst. We'll go back. Leading them and convicting them and giving them hope that a better world really is possible right here, right now, when we do our part. So play with that slide a little bit if folks want to take a picture of it. Would you pray with me? 